Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Thursday night edition of the pod. We're going to close out the week here with our new regular contributor, Dylan Murphy. If you're not familiar with Dylan, he spent a few years in the D-League as an assistant with the Fort Wayne Mad Ants, then was a Hawks D-League scout last year, and now uh, has his own site, uh, the Basketball Dictionary, also doing some writing for the Athletic as well. So Dylan, how are you? Good to have you back. I'm good, man. Always good to be here. Yeah, well, and uh, someone else who is really good to be where they are is the Indiana Pacers. They are somehow have massaged out a top 10 offense for this team and not a team for whatever reason that I've had a ton of time to watch I really want to focus in on them more over the next week because we're doing Twitter NBA show on them for Paul George's return next week but uh, I wanted to talk to you about you know how are they doing it right now on offense with this team both schematically and statistically you know, I, I feel like the biggest thing with a lot of players when you see a, a big jump in, in their ability, specific with specifically with Oladipo and Sabonis, it's really just a function of opportunity. You know, sometimes guys just are playing on a team where they're not going to touch the ball a lot, um, which obviously happened in OKC last year. And so what you might see as a big improvement really was always just there. They just needed a, a chance sort of to let that go. And if you look at Indy's roster overall, they really have a a nice set of players that all can do multiple things. You know, maybe they don't have a ton of elite three-point shooters or elite drivers, but really you look up and down their bigs and their smalls. Everyone can put it on the floor and get to the rim. Everyone can step out and hit a three-point shot. And when you have five guys on the floor with multiple offensive skills constantly, it becomes really tough to guard. Yeah, you know, when I looked at them before the season, I incorrectly thought that they're in danger of maybe even being a bottom five offense. And that probably, even if Oladipo and Sabonis were at their previous levels it was probably too harsh on them because as you mentioned they do have some guys who can shoot now whether how sustainable some of that shooting is we can talk about but they've got a lot of guys who are just quality shooters collison bogdanovich like those miles turner guys who create some spacing but my worry was they're just not going to have that guy who really provides the impetus offensively and that of course has become oladipo oladipo usage rate over 30 percent and most ridiculously shooting 43.7 percent from downtown and he's thinking he's shooting over 40 percent on pull-up threes as well so is your theory that he was this player before or do you think that he is really has made some significant improvements certainly he didn't have the opportunities last year in OKC but we also saw plenty of chances for him in Orlando in the years before that yeah you know I think it's a combination of both um you know Orlando was two years ago and he's still a young player and guys do improve 
over time. You know, some guys don't improve that quickly in the first couple of years. Some guys, it takes five, six years for them to find their comfort level. Um, but at the same time, yeah, opportunity too. I mean, he wasn't the second pick in the draft. I know it was a weak draft, but, you know, he wasn't the second pick in the draft for no reason. I mean, there was a, a base of skill there and ability that's sort of just being unlocked now with opportunity and freedom. And I think also when expectations are low um, and you don't have that guy where everyone just feels like, oh, I have to pass it to him. It creates this freedom in your team where everybody has the confidence to make a play. Whereas when you have a team with a, a star, for instance, you don't necessarily have the confidence and it takes a, a certain style of player to play with that guy. You know, one guy I think of in that respect is Eric Gordon playing alongside James Harden. You know, Gordon has that sort of... Um, that confidence in himself to be able to make plays regardless of Harden. But for a lot of guys, that doesn't exist. And on Indiana, I think no one felt that pressure where they had to pass it to someone else. So they had confidence to be the best player that they could be. Um, and that's really benefiting the team as a whole. Yeah, I mean, and, and certainly Oladipo is, is taking plenty of shots and hitting him. He had that, that huge shot. I mean, you, you talk about his confidence and that play that basically won the game against Chicago last night was one of them. They got a steal. They're down two with uh, under 30 seconds to go. I think and Oladipo just in transition he could have really gotten in for a layup most likely pulls up for a three hits it puts him up one and then uh they ended up stopping the Bulls on the last two possessions and winning and for Oladipo do you like in his game specifically what do you see as different I mean is it just the pull-up shooting because it, you know when I, I watch these big games of him he's just like making every shot it's crazy yeah you know when when you hit a certain level um as a shooter uh as an opponent, when you're scouting that team, um, you're not really looking at, oh, well, he's this guy's a really great shooter, and this guy's a very good shooter, and this guy's a good shooter. Those gradations sort of go out the window. Really, the question becomes, do we close out on this guy or do we not? Do we care about his jump shot or do we not, right? Because in the course of a game, your closeout's not going to change by four inches if a guy, uh, his three-point percentage is 1% higher, right? So right, right. with Oladipo specifically, he's reached the point where he's proving himself to be a quality enough shooter that it's causing defenses to get even tighter to him and his best attribute in years past is his quickness off the dribble to get to the rim and that now is sort of being unlocked even more because defenses have to respect his pull-up game and so I think that sort of has this doubling effect of where because he's becoming a better three-point shooter and a better outside shooter overall it's allowing him to get to the rim even more which then puts more pressure on the defense to pick one which opens up his three-point shot and so on and so forth so then it just becomes this sort of unguardable thing where you're picking your poison as opposed to really just saying, okay, you can't beat me this way, so I'm going to make you beat me this way. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think of this in terms of teams too. I remember reading years ago on an article about Chip Kelly's offense at, at Oregon this is going to go a little esoteric but so bear with me but that they you know they had all these multiple options off of all these plays and every once in a while they would run what was called a constraint play where basically oh you're starting to cheat too much towards this well now we're just going to run this play to remind you oh yeah you got to guard this too right so it's just there's more stuff that's in your mind and I think with both teams and players that that can be effective as well for teams I think it's you know you'll run a lot 
lot of plays for example like oklahoma city right it is running it, we can talk about this a little bit too I, i'm sure you probably read ben falk but they are running this new play with a hawk cut uh, where uh paul george will basically receive almost a ucla type back screen from carmelo anthony and then they'll run a pick and roll with anthony and, and bring george off a pin down on the weak side and <clears throat> george will go back door and he's basically not even looking to get that initial backdoor cut right because that's like where it all starts right you have to guard that backdoor cut and then you know anthony is more open when he sets the screen and that sort of starts the chain reaction and so right. that's the constraint play is this guy's going back door like we got to at least th- try to throw it to him every once in a while you got to make that cut hard every time you got to actually like look for the ball which george isn't even doing and so now if you have to guard that that's the basis for everything else like flex is another one of those sets right where you set that initial screen coming across the lane you have to guard that that's what makes the guy open when he after setting the screen when he pops out so and then same thing with individual players with oladipo now you have your way that you want to guard things but you know if you don't have to guard something then it's so much easier right if you can go under uh, on the the pick roll you don't want to take necessarily that three-pointer every single time off the pick and roll off the dribble but if you can make that shot it forces them to play conventional pick and roll defense and that's what open up opens up everything else exactly and i think also thad young who's you know just watching some film of the pacers in the last couple days is really more willing to take shots with less of an open window you know he's all always yes. been capable of hitting an open shot but he's more willing to just let it go everyone except and, doug collins knows that <laughs> um and so <laughs> just that former willing, coach in philly just that willingness though um really changes how you guard someone you know especially as a as a coach you know one of one of my biggest pet peeves was when you know a player would we'd say okay this guy's a non-shooter or this guy's not a great shooter so play him for the drive but that doesn't mean you don't close out it doesn't mean you don't put a hand up it just means okay maybe my closeout is a couple feet short with a late contest you know and sometimes you'll see a lot of players they just won't put up a hand at all or they'll stop 10 feet short and so you know when you have a guy who's just willing enough to shoot it and just willing enough to maybe make a couple then it's dragging that closeout out even even further and then pick and roll and pull up like you said it forces teams to go over instead of going under and so all of that has a reverberating effect you just need to do something just enough for the coaching staff and the opposing players to have to to have to guard it yeah you know when i would play pickup i almost had like five levels because you don't know anything about guys when you're playing pickup right you just show up there maybe you see him shooting around a little bit you're trying to figure out like all right you know how good of a shooter is is this guy and as a lazy big man of course i was always looking for an excuse to not get out to the three-point line and have to guard people especially as i age so i was like all right a level one is i'm just not even gonna guard this guy like if he's standing out there just go ahead and shoot it i don't care you know level two is sort of like all right i'll sort of go towards you but i'm not really gonna like actually contest you level three is like okay i want to get like a little bit of a hand up here but you know i'm not that worried about it still you know as long as i get a little bit of a hand up he's probably not gonna make it level four is all right i gotta get my hand like right in this dude's face and then level five is all right if this guy even gets his shot off at all like i'm fucked so i better just like get so close to him when he catches the ball that he just can't even get off and and so in the nba really you're probably only dealing with you know those last three type of levels because there aren't guys who are just like such bad shooters uh outside oklahoma city at least (laughs) right you know i i I totally agree and i think there is a a general misconception that when you say a guy can't shoot it means just don't contest him but every single nba player even a guy 
who's never attempted a three in his life can make wide open threes. You know, I mean, for us, when I was in the D League, I remember just some of our fives who would just sit and knock down 10 threes in a row just for oh, fun in practice. Everybody can shoot. It's just some some teams, maybe the coach doesn't allow it or they just don't have the confidence in a game or whatever. But literally every single player can make wide open shots. So you cannot give those up. So like you said, you can't have levels one and two like that. That just can't happen regardless of who it is. You know, everyone gets mad at Andre. Robertson. At least if it's a wing player, you know, if it's like a center where like, you know, he'll he'll like handle the ball and all he does is just DHOs or set screens, you know, or reverse the ball. And, and you've never seen him even look at the basketball out there. Then all right, I think you're OK. But like generally, I mean, any kind of perimeter player, I think you're it's I'm in total agree with you. Yeah. And, and but I mean, even fives now, I mean, there really aren't that many fives that aren't willing to let it go if you give them absolutely 15 feet of room. Um, but what I was saying before, you know, on Andre Robertson, everyone gets, you know, like, oh, don't guard him. Why do you let him? Well, you can't just give him 20 wide open threes uncontested in a row. Even if he's only going to make, you know, 35% of those, he can make 35% of wide open uncontested threes. Like the reason why his percentage isn't great is because you get a little bit of a hand up and that's now affecting his shot. Now, maybe you don't need to get the contest all the way there, but if you're not contesting him at all, he's going to hurt you. Um, and and so this, this is a thing you see a lot where a guy isn't a great shooter and so then the contest goes from 100 to zero you know really there always has to be some some level of pressure there yeah I, I think with Robertson in particular for me especially because they have all these other threats it's like hey you know what like until they throw the ball to him we're not going to react to him at the three-point line like we're gonna not we're not gonna allow him to have any gravity until they actually throw the ball to him and then we'll close out but you know if, if we're and we'll probably close out short uh but you know enough to at least make him because part of it too is like if you it's not even so much having a contest as almost like getting in the guy's head of like okay you might have to make a decision here you know where it's like i'm oh i'm coming you might it might actually be better for you to drive like instead of just like all right the ball's coming to me it's so obvious the absolute moment i get it i'm gonna shoot it like there's just there's no decision even to be made here i think guys make shots a lot better in those situations than at least if you see a guy out of the corner of the eye it's like oh maybe who is this like maybe he'll get here quickly enough like how fast is he coming you know do i have to maybe drive and pump fake it instead of shooting the shot yeah w- one of the things i really believe in um is as a defender and a defense overall you have to dictate to the offense um now does that mean you pressure a guy and you force it out of his hands or does that mean maybe you you stay all the way back and force him to shoot but the idea being that like you have to make him feel you and make him feel like he has to make a decision that you're forcing on some level so when you don't contest a guy 15 feet away well then you're not forcing him into any choice he can just dribble in into the space you're giving him and anyone who's played basketball knows even if you don't close out to a guy let's say you close out 10 feet short and then all of a sudden he starts driving at you with a head of steam and you have no resistance until he's already built up speed it can be really hard to guard that guy without fouling so you know this idea that you know maybe the the pressure level has to be x y and z based on a shot uh based on a shooting ability of, of an opponent really there always has to be something there because you always have to be dictating to the offensive player this is what i want you to do but you also have to put yourself in a position to guard what you want him to do all right we got a lot more we got to get back to the pacers here got a lot more questions as usual we uh go on some fun tangents here uh right after this word it is really hard to pick out the perfect gift but all too easy to get it totally wrong 
So you can avoid those issues by going to mancrates.com, the surest way to find gifts that guys will actually love. Guaranteed. This isn't a cheese of the month club. It's not a new tie. Mancrates offers all the awesome gifts. 100 hand curated gift collections for every type of guy from the rugged outdoorsman to the sports fanatics and, and everything in between the whiskey appreciation crate i actually got for my soon-to-be father-in-law a personalized decanter and glasses for his favorite drink even as a little notebook for tasting notes the grill master crate has a brass knuckle meat tenderizer and a cast iron smoker box you just go to that mancrates.com slash cap space url number one you'll let him know that you came from us and number two you can just check out all the stuff that they have there find a cool gift and they're really fun because when the crate arrives he gets to pry it open with his own laser engraved crowbar men's health and allure magazine basically polar opposites are saying that man crates are the perfect gift for men they have thousands of five-star reviews and every man crate comes with a high five guarantee meaning if you do not get a high five on giving the gift perhaps a metaphorical one you can exchange it. So once again, the way to get started with them, go to mancrates.com slash capspace to get 5% off your order. That's 5% off at mancrates.com slash capspace, mancrates.com slash capspace. Let them know that you came from us. So I know you noted that Thaddeus Young is shooting more. Oladipo has been incredible. We could talk a little bit more about his game you know we talked about the constraint plays and there's a, a category called takes early jump shot in the the pick and roll and uh he hasn't taken that many of those uh but he has 11 points on five possessions just on those where he pulls up before the screen even gets there Oladipo does and then on jumpers off the dribble out of the pick and roll he's got 79 points on 73 shots so that's just an incredible I mean when you consider that that's half court a lot of those are going to be twos as well um really pretty incredible and and uh so you know we just didn't know that he was this type of shooter and you know I think passing is going to be the next part for him but outside of Oladipo, I mean, is so much of the difference here that, hey, now they have a guy who can attack and they got some shoes around him, or is there more to it than that as well with this team? Yeah, you know, I think it's something I mentioned earlier. Um, they really tend to have a lot of ball handlers on the floor and a lot of playmakers on the floor. And I think it really all ties into what we've been talking about. Um, let's take, you know, a Corey Joseph or a Darren Collison, for instance. You know, they're both capable as shooting the ball and getting to the rim. Now, would you consider either of them all-star level players? No, but you still have to respect them on some level in both of those aspects. And so when you do that, that puts you in conventional defense, right, where you're guarding against both both aspects. So one thing that's really important is when you're forcing teams into conventional defense, then you're really getting the best advantage possible. And so conventional really to me is you're forcing an over on the pick and roll and you're forcing a drop. And then from there, the guard gets to make decisions um, in terms of passing and shooting. And you can't really commit either way to one thing or the other. And so then and like I was saying before, the offense is really able to dictate to the defense because the defense doesn't really know what to cut off. And so I think you're seeing a lot of this. You know, Miles Turner um, and Sabonis both can shoot the three. They can both shoot it from the mid-range. They can both finish around the rim, right? So they're, when they're both capable of rolling and popping, you know, one of the things we always wrote on scattering ports, this guy's a roller, this guy's a popper. Well, if you have a guy who can roll and can pop, it can sort of get the big feet stuck in the mud on the pick and roll, whether, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. So 
instead of getting that sort of anticipatory step right at the pick and roll because you know this guy's going to pop or you know he's going to roll, you're sort of waiting and reacting. And again, you're not dictating. And so that really sort of makes makes defense tougher. And I think it allows Indiana's offense to flourish. Um, and then and from a schematic standpoint, you know, I'm really not well, seeing... Well, one, one point on that too, but Sorry, before yeah. you move on. Uh, you know, Miles Turner, you mentioned in particular, not only can he get to the rim, although he's actually shooting a really poor percentage at the rim. That's something Danny uh, or Liam actually... Uh, and I talked about on uh, the 15 and 60 over last weekend, but Turner is shooting 61% on long mid rangers outside of 15 feet, which is obviously absolutely ridiculous and won't continue, but he's still, you know, he's enough of a threat there that again, you know, I mean, when you're making the decision of like, all right, do we have to stop this guy out here or not? Like you definitely do with the level of shooting that he has and he's shooting 35% from three, which is totally good for a center. Again, a guy that you have to guard, you know, you can't just leave him out there. And so if he can either pop or roll or he can slip the screen early as well, I mean, there's just so many options that you have to account for and, and react, right? You just can't anticipate. And with the way that Oladipo is shooting the ball as well, it really leads to a lot of problems in conventional pick and roll defense. And then Sabonis, you know, he hasn't really done much shooting outside this year. That was kind of his role, which he was not very good at in OKC last year. But he can just make such great decisions on the pick and roll if you throw it to him early as well, uh, that that is, has really been unstoppable. So sorry, I interrupted you there, but I thought it was kind of a, a natural outgrowth of what you were saying. No, I mean, it's, it's totally accurate and again with with Sabonis um, even though he's not shooting the ball as much this year everybody watched Oklahoma City last year and knows that he can shoot the ball so just because a guy isn't shooting the ball doesn't mean you you don't guard him when he's out there you know I, uh, just watching some clips uh, right before we got started really if you look at Sabonis's pick and pops he's getting wide open teams aren't allowing him uh, sorry aren't cutting off his his jumper so you, you give a guy that's a capable shooter an open 20 footer maybe he's not shooting a great percentage right now i haven't looked at the numbers but eventually that's going to come back to haunt you and when you're giving up open shots it can be really deflating as a defense um just on the floor that's when you get guys sort of bickering at each other and problems result even if the ball doesn't go in the basket say oh this was your rotation oh this was your rotation and so that really creates another aspect of problems too which allows indiana to do well so you started talking about what they're doing schematically. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it's really nothing complex. Um, you know, I was sort of, I haven't watched a ton of Pacers this year until we sort of talked about, hey, let's talk about Indiana's offense. Um, and yeah, so I, I, went I in, don't think anybody has watched a ton of Pacers <laughs> this year, frankly, even their own fans. Well, I am living in Indiana right now, so you'd think I, I would. Okay. But uh, um, so one thing, you know, I did notice, though, is that they're really their actions are really decision-based for their ball handlers. So you're seeing just like whether it's... It's zipping up uh, a guard into a pick and roll or a, a simple split action or just little sort of quick hitting option actions. So where it's not just like, hey, we're going to come down and run a ball screen, but it's just like a little dummy stuff. And then we're getting into pick and roll. And the idea being they're just getting the ball in the hands of their playmakers. And they really have got a lot of guys who can do that, whether it's, you know, uh, Corey Joseph, Darren Collison or Oladipo. And generally they have two out of three of those guys on the floor at all times. So you always have those multiple ball handlers, which can be really tough. And if you look across the league, not a lot of teams have two very good ball handlers on the floor at once at all times you know you generally have your dominant one ball handler and maybe one guy who can do it a little bit but Indiana tends to have two guys on the floor that can really make plays and that that can be tough when let's say you stop one pick and roll 
and then the ball gets swung and all of a sudden now you have to guard a second one and really guard it. It's not like, oh, we can, we're not really worried about this guy handling the ball and getting to the rim. And so it can be really deflating when you feel like you play great defense for 18 seconds and then in the last six seconds you get beaten. Or you play great defense for 10 seconds, you think, oh, we really shut down this pick and roll and then bam, they run a second one and it just slices through you. So, I mean, I think that really gives them an advantage as well. Yeah, and I think that's something that teams that don't have premium creators, although Oladipo has evolved into that, uh, can really do is say, all right, you know, we're just going to play two point guards together. Rick Carlisle is someone who's been way ahead of the curve on that, where they haven't had the greatest perimeter threats throughout most of his time in in Dallas since, you know, Jason Terry kind of fell out of being a a star player, but they still have managed to generally play pretty well on offense uh, until these last couple of years um, with playing some smaller players. And, you know, obviously that has a defensive cost as well. And so their offense, they are sixth in points per possession right now per cleaning the glass, sixth in e-field goal percentage, fifth in avoiding turnovers, don't really get on the offensive glass at all, don't really get to the foul line at all. Um, You know, I I do think there's an unsustainable aspect to their field goal shooting, just what they've been shooting on jumpers so far in particular, because they're not a team that gets a ton at the rim. They are uh, number one in frequency on long mid-rangers, but, you know, they're hitting a ton of those. So if you had to guess, I mean, they're sixth in offense right now. If you had to say, what is their offensive ranking going to be for the rest of the year? You know, like, what does this offense just kind of feel like to you after watching them? I mean, I think it'll be around, I'd say, 10 to 15 by the end. I mean, I think, like you said, we can expect a a shooting regression of some sort. Um, But I I do think that the way they're generating shots is really just with the penetration of their ball handlers. And I do want to make a point. um, You were saying about Ricardo are playing two ball handlers, um, two point guards. I, I think that's sort of an underutilized aspect of um, you know lineups in in today's league, just because T- Toronto has had a lot of success with that too. With, with uh, they almost always do that on their second year, and they bring in Lowry, and they, it, first it was Joseph, now it's Wright, Van Vliet, like, and they have a lot of success with those units also. But here's here's what here's what I'm thinking is that the there's a conventional wisdom right that you have to have a one, a two, a three, and a four, and a five. Um, the idea being if you're too small at one position, that hurts you. But I think there's really not much of a disadvantage of having a smaller guy guard a two. The reason being most twos are guys that are flying off screens for jumpers or they're putting the ball on the ground from the perimeter to get to the rim, right? There aren't twos that are really posting posting up. Um, and in my experience, the easiest way to guard a guy like that is with speed, right? So if you're able to quickly get around screens and really maneuver, you know, the hardest person to hit uh, on a screen is someone who gets low and skinny. That's a really a point we would always teach is... When you see a a ball screen or an off-ball screen coming, you have to get low so the screener can't really hit you with the meat of their body and it's more towards their legs. And then you get skinny, meaning you kind of, you know, you'll see a guy take his arm, his inside arm, and sort of slide it more inside to avoid getting hit. And so when you have a guy who's more able to do that, right, then he's able to get around those screens away from the ball. And then on the ball, I think like a Steph Curry, for instance, whenever he has a size mismatch, you always see him get up into the ball handler and use his quick hand to disrupt their dribble and i think when you have a guard that a smaller guy that can do that to a good ball handler i think that's harder to deal with than someone who's maybe bigger but can contest a shot easier because even if that guy can rise up and pull up over you that's still generally not a good shot if someone's rising up and shooting over you you still have a mild contest there and then on the flip side of course like we were saying you get two really good ball handlers on the floor on offense so i think the trade-off is pretty beneficial 
Yeah, I agree with you, especially for most teams uh, during the regular season. I think the trade-offs are, are kind of not as obvious defensively, where it's it's much more in help defense, right? Like if you see Fred Van Bleet, for example, right, trying to come over and tag the roller, as you talk about uh, so much, uh, or you know, make a play if there's a, if they've already thrown it to the roller and he's trying to come over. I mean, that he's just completely, you know, he's like a gnat. Like guys don't even feel him. He can't intercept the pass. You know, they can just go right up uh, over him. So I think in help defense, it matters. And then also, if you're just trying to close out to a spot up a a guy with short arms is really just again some whoever he's guarding once he's helped and trying to get back to his man can just shoot right over him even if he does close out so it's kind of it's i agree with you an individual defense like it's not as bad and then also if you get into a playoff situation where they say hey you know what like ian clark you're gonna play him we're just gonna attack him every time with like some of our best players put him in pick and roll try to get him switched on to some of our uh, our best guys and just creates another weak link but certainly in the meat of the regular season and for most teams who are not you know don't have that kind of premium talent level in, in bench units i think it's a very effective strategy yeah. um uh, anything else that uh, struck you uh, about the pacers before we uh move on to our next topic here i think that's about it all right well that's that's good all right i feel like we had a little bit of a pacers deficit on the, on this show so i'm glad to uh to be able to get to it with especially someone who spent so much time in indiana like just <clears throat> it kind of gets into your blood there i i, I guess <laughs> so uh so next thing i want to talk to you about is how in the hell is portland defending it as well as they have as of right now they are the league's third ranked defense uh, allowing only 102.2 points uh, per 100 possessions per cleaning the glass uh not a team that you look at and they're like hey man these they've got two really small guards and damon cj Nurkic seems like an adequate defensive center but not you know some explosive rim protector type of guy they don't have anyone you look at as like one of the best best wing stoppers either how the hell are they doing this you know I, one of the things i love about terry stotts um i mean i could go on forever about his offense and the way they play offense but defensively they haven't changed in a number of years now and they just do things the same way and they've played the numbers with their uh defensive schemes for years and so the way they do that is um I wrote about this on the basketball dictionary about a, about drop pick and roll drops, and so basically there are two two types of drop in the pick and roll. The one is the one that you're seeing more and more now is the aggressive drop, where the uh, defensive big will greet the ball handler basically at or right below the level of the screen to sort of take away that pull up three or that pull up two, um, and then also to not allow maybe a guy like Russell Westbrook. If you drop back too far, then he sort of takes off on that runway that's created. And then once he's coming at you with speed and athleticism, it's really hard to guard. Um, And then the second way, which Portland does, is the deep drop. So they're just hanging back like Rudy Gobert does for the Utah Jazz, just hanging back around the paint, kind of like Roy Hibbert used to do and and made sort of popular throughout the league. And then just going vertical. And if you want to pull up from two and if you even want to pull up from three, they're allowing it. And I think what you're finding is is that that's sort of taking teams out of moving the ball because such a good shot or seemingly good shot is being generated early in the clock. You see a lot of selfishness uh, from opponents when they play Portland because it's, oh, well, I got this clean look, so how can I not take it? Um, and then the other thing that I think that makes them really good is, well, maybe Lillard and McCollum aren't the best on-ball defenders. Um, McCollum in particular really works his butt off in pick and roll, fighting over screens or fighting through 
through screens away from the ball when he's going through pin downs or staggers. You know, one thing he does really well is he keeps in contact, meaning when he when he's coming around a screen, getting low and skinny, he always keeps an arm sort of attached to the ball handler so that they can't get comfortable and get free. And so that really sort of mucks up what's going on. And then if he does get the shot off, McCollum's coming on in what's called rear view pursuit. So he's going over the screen and then he's fighting back to the inside shoulder for a contest sort of like you see in your rear view mirror when a, a car is coming up through your blind spot on your left side. That's sort of what he does. And he gets that hand up. And so the, the offensive player feels it. And they're just doing a really nice job staying consistent with all, with all of that throughout every game, regardless of who they're playing. Yeah, and you, that's interesting that you say that about CJ because I think the common conception is that he is not a good defensive player, and I think he he does give a pretty good effort. I think we've seen better from Dame because you think about, hey, you know what, like. The way that drop coverage works is you've got a guy who works hard, gets over the screen. If somebody's just going to get completely obliterated at the point of attack, then yeah, you you can get the runway. You can just pull up for a wide open 15 footer, which, you know, I realize that analytically that's considered to not be a great shot, but a wide open 15 footer off the dribble for most point guards in the NBA, like they're going to be able to hit that. Um, And so just getting over, I think guys with length are, are so used, you know, Clay Thompson is one of these guys where he can get over the screen, continue to contest from behind and make that difficult even if he doesn't have his big in the picture um but so it's good to hear that those guards are, are doing a little bit better in that particularly cj and i think one of the things that's been underrated you know we say nurkic kind of on paper is not that good but i view him as a substantial defensive upgrade uh from what mason Plumley was giving them last year when they really were struggling and were one of the worst defenses in the nba although of course uh good and bad three-point luck plays into that as well yeah nurkic is doing a real nice job too and you know as the big um in a drop in a really deep drop what what you're trying to do is when the roller sort of rumbles down the middle of the lane the idea is because the dropper is so deep he's keeping the ball and the roller in front of him so if that pocket pass comes he has enough time to slide over to the roller and guard him for a tough finish um and then what that allows you to do is not tag the roller at all and stay to three-point shooter so the only option the ball handler has is that mid-range pull-up with the guy coming in behind for a contests or that early pocket pass which Nurkic can then slide over and because he's big and strong you know I think this is a really underrated part of verticality specifically is when you have upper body strength you can take a hit to your chest and not fly back to the rim so the contest stays not just at the point of the shot but after the shot right so a lot of times you'll see a driver like Westbrook loves to just drive right into you create the contact and at the last second uh, hang in the air and then the finish around you but a guy like Nurkic because he's so strong he's not backing up when he feels that contact so that contest stays through the entire finish and then it becomes a lot harder to finish those shots and I think one other point which I didn't make before was that like you said you know a lot of point guards can hit that clean mid-range pull-up but I think what happens is when you see that much space as a ball handler toward the rim you know your first instinct is to get all the way to the basket not get to that pull-up so you don't see guys taking that shot as much and this is sort of my own intuition not really anything I can prove but I think it's been drilled into ball handlers and guards in general across the league that mid-range shots are bad so much to the point that a lot of those clean shots that they're getting at the 16 to 18 foot range just aren't being taken because it's like oh well this isn't a great shot and there's 18 seconds on the shot clock so maybe I should look for something better.
matter. And so I think all that sort of plays into why Portland's defense is working really well. Yeah, and just to go through some of the numbers behind them, they allow the second fewest percentage of three-pointers. Only 27% of opponent's shots are threes. And to put that in context, the Knicks rank worst in the league, allowing 37%. So if you're allowing 10% fewer shots from three than the worst team, that you get a lot of a math advantage there. And also corner three, they are number one in the league at providing the corner three. Uh, less than 5% of opponent shots are, are corner threes. And again, if you look at the Knicks, they're at 10%. So, I mean, that's such a valuable shot, the corner three, that you know 5% fewer of your shots that you can get a big math advantage there. Uh, from mid-range... Then, just on yeah, that corner ahead. three real quick, I mean, that's directly related to pick-and-roll defense, which is... Sure. So typically, in your classic pick-and-roll, you have the ball handler on one slot, a shooter on the other slot, and then the two corners occupied. And so as the ball handler, let's say he starts on the left slot and starts moving right off a, a ball screen to his right, um, the tagger is that guy who's guarding the corner shooter. But if you're in a deep drop, that tag is not necessary. So that throwback to the corner shooter, which is the guy who's supposed to shake up out of the corner. I know that was a little uh, technical there, but um, so that guy who's in the corner is supposed to shake up, but the tagger is not tagging the roller. So the tagger just stays with the shaker. So he has nowhere to go with the ball. And so that really is helping them eliminate corner threes as well. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be an interesting feeling where you're like, all right, in my head, I'm not supposed to take this early mid-ranger. Um, and I'm not supposed to, you know, I, I can't pass anyone on the wing. They're not really open. Um, and, and then, you know, I, the role guy, you know, that's not necessarily be open either. Now, what breaks that scheme is if they go against a team like Golden State, who always just lights them up defensively. If you really have a guy who can just pull up off the dribble from three, and I think that's an underrated part of Golden State's game too, with both Curry and their screeners, is how open he's able to actually get on just a regular pick and roll for a three if you go to drop coverage. Whereas, you know, if you compare that to where Houston was last year, right, where their ball handlers were not able to get that open because they had Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green guarding them in that playoff series last year, um, even though they were, the Spurs were back in drop coverage. And that was actually an example, too, of Houston not wanting to take the mid-rangers, uh, you know, probably your classic example of what you're talking about. And that really hurt them in that Spurs series, uh, late in that series. Um, but anyway, yeah, it, it's got to be difficult for ball handlers in that situation if they're playing it right. But I mean, they were terrible last year. They've been doing the same thing the whole time. I mean, outside of Nurkic, outside of the guards, is there anything else you can point to with them about what they're doing differently this year or, or better personnel as to why they've been so good? Yeah, you know, I think not different personnel necessarily, but I mean, they just, they also do have a lot of length in the 3-4. You know, I mean, Mo Harkless, just the ability to, to guard multiple players. Um, you know, Noah Vonley can guard out of position. Um, so they have a couple guys who can really sort of switch around. Evan Turner does a nice job on uh, multi-position guarding so I think that helps them too and where they're they really don't have a guy that you look at and you say oh we can just attack him you know there's really nobody on the floor that at all times that really you can say that about I know people make the argument that that's Lillard and McCollum but you know I disagree with that I I think especially in one-on-one those guys um, you know defensively a lot of guys take it as an affront if you know a team says oh I'm going to clear out an ISO on you and those guys can guard when they want to and 
especially in those one-on-one situations, I think they do do a fine job. And so I, th- I think all that with the drops, you know, like we've been talking about, that really makes the biggest difference. And they don't overreact to to other teams, um, specifically throughout the league. If a guy maybe is hitting one or two pull-up shots, obviously Golden State's the exception with Curry and Durant and Thompson. But in general, there really aren't a lot of guys around the league who, coming off a ball screen, can hit those pull-up threes very consistently. Uh, so even if a guy does hit, you know, let's say three or four of them in one game, yeah, that's going to hurt you a little bit, but they're not going to change their entire defense just to stop three or four baskets a game. Because most guys, even if they can hit a couple of those, they're going to go, let's say, three of eight or four of nine. And, and that's not great, but um, in terms of defensively for you, for you, but it's not going to kill you. Now, how often does a guy go seven of eight on pull-up threes off pick and roll, right? Pretty much never. Yeah, and if and you're so able to playing lock down, math. if you're able to lock down everything else, it helps. And it also helps them that one of those guys is on their own team who, who totally you probably really have to guard out there or two of them actually really Lillard and McCollum and then you know it, it's right I think even you know Kyrie's trying to play a little bit differently this year Cal Lowry maybe is one of those guys they're both in the opposite conference Harden the way he's shooting this year you know probably falls in that category he's taking over 50 percent of his shots to from three right now but i think you're right most guys there are not a lot of teams where it's just like okay we're gonna have a zero pass possession here where this guy's gonna just pull up for a three and he's he's gonna just shoot that every time with no conscience and his teammates enable him to do that a few other things i'm seeing for, from portland just for on the statistical resume and you they're allowing pretty much the same shots in terms of like where they are from their statistical profile for a while has been they actually allow a very good percentage on mid-rangers the last three years you mentioned that they play the same way every time <laughs> basically since uh, Aldridge has left they've allowed over 40 percent on mid-range jumpers the last three years and that has been 30th 30th and 26th even this year in the NBA in terms of the percentage they're allowing for mid-range that's a perfect artifact of what you're talking about where they're hey you know we're just not going to contest that much uh, for mid-range we don't have a ton of length in the backcourt to make those difficult and they also you know are allowing few threes and few shots at the rim statistically they were number one this year in worst percentage at the rim by opponents uh same thing last year amazing they were number one last year despite how bad they were defensively and then some luck-based aspects they allowed the highest percentage on corner threes last year uh and 28th uh in terms of like the highest percentage allowed from three so they're near the bottom of the league and now that is just flipped this year they're fifth in terms of opponent three-point percentage this year and then things that are kind of you know the hidden things that aren't talked about as much with defense last year they were 28th in free throw rate by opponents they're mid-pack this year and they were mid-pack in terms of offensive rebounds allowed and this year they are number two in the nba in defensive rebounding so that's been huge as well i always thought that Plumley it wasn't the greatest defensive rebounder and i think you know they're playing two bigs together a little bit more this year too with the injuries to aminu and, and all that's helped them on the defensive class yeah, you know, just to to go on your point of, you know, sort of the shooting percentage that opponents are getting at the rim against them, you know, I think there's a, a misconception about what rim protection really is, which is, you know, you say, oh, well, this guy just blocks shots or this guy, you know, he can handle a, a drive at the rim. But, um, you know, if, if you look at a, a, a classic drop coverage, um, one of the really important things is that you're set uh, at the point of the screen or at the, sorry, when the screen happens. 
So let's say you're guarding uh, Damian Lillard, for instance, right? And he starts to drive downhill on you. Well, if you're still moving forward and then he's coming downhill at you, you have to stop and then backpedal and then sprint to the rim to catch up to him. But he's way too quick, so he's going to get there and finish above you. And so what Nor- uh, uh, excuse me, what Portland does is they don't have those mistakes because Nurkic isn't coming all the way out there and then having to sprint back to the rim. He's just stand- standing there and waiting. And most guards really aren't great finishers through contact because it's such a size disadvantage. So Nurkic just stands there, he's strong, he goes vertical, and he takes the contact, and they force tough finishes. And so even though you might not think of him as a great rim protector per se, Portland's putting in, him in a position to be a good rim protector. And that's what's happening with all their bigs too. Yeah, and I, I've said this a lot of times, that your best uh, rim protecting weapon as a big as your chest. And even smalls can do that too. You know, I mean, they're not as big as you mentioned. They can get knocked backwards. But if you could just jump, even if you're, you know, six foot five, if you can just jump and make the other guy hit you in the chest at the rim, it's going to be a tough finish no matter who it is. Uh, and especially if you can make that contact occur outside the charge circle so you're not just getting pushed to, under the basket. And you noted this, if you want to see a, a perfect example, this Al Horford, who's, you know, one of your quicker bigs that you're going to see, uh, the film example that Dylan had in his piece on the basketball dictionary al horford is standing at the free throw line they set a screen he takes one step forward as the screen is occurring outside the three-point line and he's dead to rights i mean it really is just so hard to stop your momentum and so that's why as a big you either so much of it is about just being where you need to be when the screen is set there's another guy a friend of mine who works for an nba team who says hey if you want to predict how successful a screen is going to be just look at the distance you know whether the big is still moving at the time the screen occurs right because even if you're in like an aggressive drop which you talked about where the guy is up you know close to the three-point line and then backpedals he's got to be there as the guy's coming off the screen so he can start going backwards if he's still going forward he's just going to get blown by so it's really an interesting point so all right i got some nerdy coach questions to ask if we haven't gotten nerdy enough uh, already uh right after this word Fancy basketball fans, if you love fantasy basketball, then you need to try what I think is the best app for fantasy draft. It's daily fantasy basketball, but it's a different system. It's not that usual salary cap league. And so you're not going up against professionals as much. You're not going up against people who are putting in hundreds of lineups every day. Instead, you get to play real live snake drafts with other people, just like in your season long league. It's a draft that lasts for just one night and there's no management. You don't have to worry about the waiver wire, which has been killing me in my fantasy football league. We've been out of it. We totally started tanking. And now we even have to like bother setting our lives. We didn't want to do it because our season is over. With this, it's just one night. You just set it and forget it. They'll even take care of last minute injuries for you. You could start one right now. They start every couple of minutes, only a couple of minutes to finish up the snake draft. Drafts start from just $1, so you have one for everyone's price range. So come and play Draft today. You can download the app anytime by searching Draft in your app store. Join a game in minutes. You can go to your computer on Draft.com. But you got to use that promo code CAPSPACE to get a free entry into Draft when you make your first deposit. Once again, that promo code CAPSPACE. Make sure you use that and let them know that you came from us. All right. So one thing I wanted to ask you just uh, as uh, now a, a, I won't say a long time coach, maybe a medium time coach. Uh, just, I think that's just, appropriate. Both uh, both individually and on the team level, just what were like your favorite drills as a coach that you really thought were like most effective that, that you enjoyed running a lot? 
Um, you know, so one thing that every team does, um, and this goes to even high school, college, NBA, is shell drill. So basically you have four defenders um, on the two blocks and the two elbows, and then you take four offensive players, um, and you put them in the corners and the slots, and you swing the ball around. And so you'll say, the coach will sort of say, swing it, swing it, swing it, swing it, and then he'll go beat him. And so what that means is the guy on offense who has the ball will beat uh, the defender to the baseline side from wherever he is. And so that what you do from there is you sort of walk through your rotations, um, what that's going to be, which you know we've talked a little bit about before and I have on the on the dictionary and you trap the box you sink and fill and then they throw it out and then based on where the ball is thrown out to um, you X out or you get back to original matchups and so what you do is when you're when you're facing an opponent, you know you do shell drill at shoot around. Um, you have your guys sort of key into personnel. Um, so on the throwout, you say, okay, this guy is going to be C.J. McCollum. So on the throwout, how do you close out to him? Right? Okay, obviously we're going to hard close to him. And so being aware of who you're guarding and learning how to sort of training yourself in that moment to say, okay, I'm closing out to this guy versus this guy. Um, but one thing that I always you know found interesting is that you know in my experience we never practice switching. Um, and we never practice guarding out of position. You know, it's pretty often that you have a guard handling a big in the post or, you know, uh, a big handling a guard on the perimeter, but we really didn't practice it in a full speed situation. We might walk through, you know, hey, we want to switch this, um, you know, under six seconds on the shot clock, we want this to be a one through five switch. Um, but we never really worked on full speed switch guarding, which I thought, you know, could have helped because especially, you know, in my first year, we were really switchy and we had a lot of like size guys and a lot of guys who could guard multiple positions but occasionally we would get you know pretty mixed up in our matchups and we didn't really practice and I think part of that just comes from it can be hard during the season you don't have a lot of practice time and so you don't want to be putting your guys through full speed stuff sure because unless you're doing that at full speed you're really not getting a great um the great effect of it so I think maybe in training camp that's something you know if I get back into coaching that I would I would suggest but you know I understand the argument against it too is you have so much to teach and it's such a specific thing that you know Maybe you don't have the time for it, but you know that's always something I thought uh, you know uh, was of interest to me. And then putting that into shell drill as well. Yeah, I think we've seen now so many teams where you know are running like the split cuts out of the post, right? And teams are starting to you know Golden State has been one of the leaders in this because teams started switching them, and so you needed counters to that, right? If you're going to do a split cut out of the post, sometimes you'll fake the screen and you'll just cut immediately, you know, and you can get a backdoor that way, or you set the screen, you get the switch. But now the guy's on your back and you can go right to the rim for a backdoor layup. Or sometimes you'll just exchange and not really screen. And so is that going to be a switch? Is it not going to be a switch? So practicing that of like, okay, is this a real screen? Are we going to call it out? You know, can we just use hand signals if it's really loud? That kind of stuff, I, I think it is something that teams maybe should practice more. And if you have smart players the way Golden State does on defense, you can avoid some of those foibles of switching because teams really are evolving now to try to take advantage of of switching specifically in off-ball action. Um, another question I want to ask you, This we hadn't talked about this beforehand, but you mentioned, you know, you have the scout team, right? Like, you know, you'll have your five starters or whatever, and then in shoot-around or if you're doing some playoff preparation, you'll have those guys impersonate specific players on the other team. But, you know, you're not always playing with your starters. How does it work to, like, actually get the bench guys ready to know this stuff if they're being the scout team? Do you just switch it up? Like, how do you just do that logistically so 
so that guys who are going to be playing off the bench know what they're supposed to do too. Yeah, so we would just switch it up. So for instance, we'll run five on O um, with our first group, and they'll go down back, down back. Um, so five on O just being you, you know, coach calls out a play, and you run the play against no defense, and then you know finish it with a layup, and then come back. So they'll go four times, and then um, the second unit would go, and then you know if we had enough guys, the D League you only have a roster of ten, so we wouldn't have fifteen, but. You know, uh, NBA, you go three to three units. Um, and so we would do that. But yeah, other drills, it was really just first group do something and then second group do something and flip offense, defense. And that, you know, you sort of touched on this point, which is, you know, in general, we would only work with, you know, first group with first group, second group with second group. But um, your lineups get very mixed and matched during games. Um, and so when we would scrimmage, we would mix up the teams. But yeah. in terms of drilling, it would generally be first unit and second unit. So, you know, that is another thing, too, which... Um, um, definitely could you know be improved and I, you know, I can only speak to my experience but um, you know I think definitely mixing up the groupings that way so guys get some familiarity um, and then another thing also which can be tough is a lot of teams will start traditionally and then downsize as the game goes on um, but most plays when you're running them uh, switching with toggling between the three and the four is really the toughest thing to do because most plays are designed where the four and the five are the two screeners right. and then the one and the two and the three are the guys who are getting the action for them you know unless it's uh you have a, a shooting big or it's a post-up play or whatever but so when you go from the three to the four you go from knowing a play as a guy who it's targeted for to then having to know a play in terms of how to get someone open and screening and so the roles can be really different and so especially for rookies it can be really tough to understand that uh that switching in terms of your role on offense when you're running plays so really being cognizant of guys who are going to play the three and the four and making sure that they know every play at both positions is you know definitely an important thing to focus on all right so last thing we wanted to talk about here you wrote this huge opus uh, on not even all pick and roll defense but just uh, how to execute drop coverage it was probably you know i don't know seven thousand words between the, the two pieces or something like that yeah <laughs> i went a little <laughs> overboard but uh once well, i got there, going i couldn't really stop so there's no such thing I, you know i used to find that with the my salary cap stuff too i would write these long articles about like okay you know what's like the plan for this team going forward like how much cap space they're gonna have who should they sign and i'd just like i'd look down and i'd spent like you know 10 hours on it and, and five thousand words on it because you just there's just so many permutations and oh i gotta explain this you know i feel like i'm incomplete if i don't explain this and it's just uh you know that's why i don't write anymore <laughs> but uh uh so but you watch i've been watching a lot of pick and rolls around the league and so what are your basic uh observations about what you've seen evolving in pick and roll defense this year so you know we talked about this with portland about how you know the trend used to be everyone's in a deep drop and it's because it's the sort of analytics friendly approach um, force the mid-range shut down the three-point line but sort of with the explosion of guys who can shoot the pull-up three there's been a change and especially with the downsizing and general greater athleticism of bigs on the whole of really moving into that aggressive drop where you're trying to take away the pull-up three or the pull-up two and still drop back to the rim and I think this goes to a, a conceptual problem which you know anytime I'm talking to basketball people we we always have this argument really not argument but because I don't have the answer, which is 
as a defense, should you try to take away everything or should you try to take away 80% of things and give them 20% because you know you can do a better job taking away 80%. So it's interesting actually to to mention that like the Bucks, for example, you know, Kevin Arnovitz wrote a a long story about them before the season and that they really like, they're like, hey, we want to take away everything, right? We're going to trap, we're going to bring someone over and then we have so much length and we're not going to make mistakes. We're going to still rotate back to guys on the weak side as well. And, and, you know, in 2014-15, they were, able to execute that a little bit better they got some good luck with opponents missed threes and then these last few years their defense has not been as effective and now they've kind of changed up a, a little bit so it's an interesting I, I and the heat were another team too or just like hey we're going to be so intense we're going to fly around we're not going to give you anything we're going to force a ton of turnovers you know that's an example i think of that first strategy would you agree with that completely and i think um you know that's sort of the philosophical question right? What, what do you do? You know, do you, do you really try to take away everything? And I think, you know, that digs even deeper in terms of, you know, how you teach, um, you know, are you teaching to perfection or are you teaching to very good, you know? And obviously the argument for teach to perfection is you want to reach, you know, sort of the zenith of what you can become, but at the same time, then maybe that opens you up to a lot of different holes it can create because you're never perfect and you're, it's giving you, you know, sort of, it's creating bigger gaps in your defense or bigger gaps in whatever you're trying to teach as a coach. And then, you know, so the I think the, the compromise right now, you see a lot of teams in that aggressive drop, which we've talked about, where basically the calculus has changed that, okay, well, the more dangerous person tends to be the ball handler in the pick and roll. So what we're going to do is we're going to pressure him, and then that's going to allow the roller maybe to slip behind the dropper. Remember in the deep drop, the drop the dropper keeps the roller and the ball in front. But in the aggressive drop, um, the roller sometimes slips in behind the dropper. Now, while he tries to backpedal enough to keep that guy in front it's not always possible so basically what teams are saying are if you want to hit the roller sometimes and he might get a couple pocket pass dunks or layups like that's okay you know we're just going to take away the threes and we're going to take away your ball handler having the ability to make plays and i think the the team you see this the most with or in terms of how people guard them is houston right you see clint capella you know rolling and catching early pocket pass at the free throw line and now it's okay do i go to the rim and attack and score or do i try to make a play because teams are saying hey we don't want James Harden making decisions we want Clint Capella making decisions and so that's why they moved to the aggressive drop and so that's you know I don't I don't know what the solution is there and I think it you know can be argued either way but you know if you force me to choose I'm, I'm sort of in the aggressive drop camp right now yeah and a couple of points on that Golden State really I think changed their season defensively early last year they were playing Zaza Pachulia and David West early on the same way that they had played Bogut Bogut a great rim protector also a guy who really knows the angles to, to prevent passes to the roll guy even when he's in a regular drop coverage and so they tried West and they tried Pachulia in that role and the guys are just getting ahead of steam as you were talking about and just blowing right by them at the room because those guys are not great traditional rim protectors who can still deal with someone who's got a head of steam going at him like a Rudy Gobert or, or like a Bogut and so they moved to a more aggressive drop and it really changed their pick and roll coverage because both of those guys actually are very savvy out on the floor even if they're not the fastest guys West has good hands Pachulia is a master at you know not only necessarily retreating back and keeping the roll man in front of him but even if the roll man gets behind him kind of retreating on the axis between those two guys so there isn't like a great passing angle to throw to and then of course they have such great help a 
on the weak side as well if needed um so that was uh, one point i want to make and then the other one i wanted to ask you is if you're a fan watching at home how can you tell the difference between you know an aggressive drop coverage where you know you're up there i mean you're still pretty close to the three-point line if the screen's occurring out there versus a hedge or versus like an actual more aggressive trap so there are basically three levels the first level being the deep drop which we've talked talked about with portland um which they do really they do really well and they have done for a number of years on the second level is the aggressive drop which is you're at the level of the screen or you're just beneath the level of the screen and so basically what that means is if the the dropper were to stick his hand out his right or left hand depending on which side the screen is on would stick it out he'd be able to just touch the um the screener so at that point there's really no room so when you're watching it on film do you you know is that guy in a place where he can take away or contest heavily the pull-up shot right as the ball handler comes off the screen if he is then he's in an aggressive drop and then so the hard show or hard hedge or hedge or blitz um, there's sort of a number of different terms but basically that idea is when you see um, the the big instead of dropping now he lunges out at the ball handler so his back is uh, or sorry his chest is facing one of the sidelines so now he's basically perpendicular to half court um, and so the idea being you're trying to force the ball to go all the way around that guy who's jumping out now the point of that sort of defense is you'll see teams use it against pick and pop players because the angle of recovery for a guy in a blitz usually is into the passing lane for a pick and pop so that's the idea behind that and then a straight trap is when it's just chaos right you see the guy he just jumps him right it's not even there's no really technique to it it's just hey we're just going to jump you right at the point of the screen and we're going to try to get a strip or a turnover or a deflection something like that um and so that that was a tactic that we like to use out of timeouts and I think it can be particularly effective against a guy who's a really strong ball handler. You sort of just spring a trap on him when he's not expecting it. So then throughout the game, he has it in his mind that at any second, a trap might be coming. And, you know, some teams can get alert to it if you only do it out of timeout. So, you know, one of the things I liked about um, my first head coach, Connor Henry, is we'd always draw two plays out of the huddle or we'd say trap on the second play down court. So just they couldn't really be ready for when it was going to come. Yeah. Um, and so that that was that was the thing I like to do as well. But that's sort of how you analyze the difference. Are you above the screen? Or are you at the level of the screen? Or are you below the screen? Yeah, that'll be a great topic for next time, actually, uh, to talk about what goes on in timeouts. Got a, a ton of questions about that as well. Um, just to, because I, I have to express an opinion, that's just my nature. I think that just like hedging just kind of sucks. Like I really think it, it's the, the least effective coverage. I mean, the especially when it, the idea is just like, I'm not trying to trap you. It's just I want to make you have a longer path to go around me and then let the the <clears throat> ball handlers man get back in front. Like that just seems to never work for me for whatever. Like and maybe it's because uh, the most salient example I can think of it is the Cavs do that with Kevin Love a lot. And so, it's, you know, that's that's not the greatest example, but it seems like it, that doesn't really seem to work as well for me. I think I would, you know, if you're going to do it that way, I think you might as well. If you have them that far up, you might as well just trap anyway, because I think if you head you're just getting like the worst of both worlds right like you have the guy way out of there a quick ball handler can still get around him and you know you're uh you're totally out of position so like you might as well if you're that far up and you're exposing yourself anyway you might as well just like get the ball out of the guy's hands to begin with yeah you know the hedge really in my opinion applies in very particular situation which is when it's against a guy you know is going to pick and pop and it's against and it's with someone on your team that is pretty athletic it can get out there so most teams 
tend to use it with their fours only. Um, that's how you'll typically see it used. Um, but the problem is, like you said, is you know the hedge causes a big rotation generally. Sometimes a backside switch. And you know me personally, I prefer defenses that require the least amount of rotation possible. Um, just because I think when you get in rotation, that's when the cracks start to appear. And so for me, the hedge isn't something I love. But I think against certain personnel and with certain personnel on your team, it can work. You just have to be careful. Um, you know, one thing you see a lot of teams do is when the hedge comes, they'll quickly swing it the pass laterally to the opposite wing, and then they'll hit the roller because the rotation hasn't come in time uh, on the backside. And so that's sort of an easy way to break it. Uh, you see a lot of teams doing that. Yeah. And uh, so in other words, uh, don't try it with Kevin Love. All right, that's me saying that, by the way, not note for Dylan's future employers. It's not not him saying that. That's me. Uh, all right. Thanks, man. This was great. Let everyone know uh, where they can follow you before we sign off. So you can follow the basketball dictionary at uh dictionary b-ball i actually forget what it is i think it's at dictionary b-ball and then i'm on twitter at dylan t murphy um going on various tweet storms once every three days so you know be aware for be be uh be aware of that so yeah all right and uh, of course you can follow me on twitter at nate duncan nba leave a review for the pod if you, you've been enjoying it we always appreciate those uh, as well and uh we'll be back next week eastern conference 15 and 60 no wait no western conference 15 and 60 next week uh talk to y'all then thanks again to draft for sponsoring today's show it's not too late to play fantasy basketball with the highest rated fantasy football app which is draft just search draft in your app store join a game in minutes or play right from your computer on draft.com for limited time only all new players get a free entry into a draft when you make your first deposit using my promo code capspace play a real money game for free using the promo code capspace on your first deposit and let them know that you came from us at Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.